0: me I would be drafted from the small town of Lockhart which had to put out a a quota of young men to go and they were running out of uh, old man and young man so uh, I knew I was going to be drafted after the last game of football so instead of uh, waiting till they draft me I uh, got ahead and uh, went to San Antonio and joined the Marine Corps and that was in uh, 1943 and so uh, I was in the Marine Corps, I took my basic training in San Diego, California, and then uh, the rest, uh, the boot camp, and then the rest of the training was in uh, uh, Oceanside, California, Camp Pendleton. And I was there until I got through with my training, and from there we got aboard ship and went on to fight the Second World War. How long was your
1: training, Mr. Tamayo?
0: The training, uh, I can't remember, probably about four months, I think. I don't think it was six months. I think it was uh, less than that because they wanted to rush us and get us on over there because we weren't doing very well in the war with the Japanese and uh, and the uh, World War with the Germans either. So we had the whole World War to take care of. And so then uh, my whole outfit got uh, shipped out to uh, New Caledonia. That was our first stop. And uh, we were running out of ships so they were using an old Russian uh, uh, ship double square stacker we had to sleep on the deck and uh, it was very uncomfortable and then since there was enemy submarines the ship had to turn every 15 20 minutes one way or the other so it took us a long time but we finally got the new caledonia and we reformed there got strength and then uh, from there on we went to uh Water canal
1: what, well, what was your rank at around this time well
0: i was private We're just playing old private. (laughs) Do you remember more or less what uh, what your salary was? Oh gosh, I don't know. It wasn't very much. I really wasn't paying attention to that. All I wanted to do is uh, do my job and get back home. So uh, it was whatever regular it was uh, a just a private uh, would get paid. All right, sir. And uh, so uh, then uh, we reached uh, Guadalcanal. and they were just wiping out. It was uh, they had taken over Guadalcanal already. The Marine Corps had, and uh, that's where we start really rebuilding up so that we could go fight and uh, take over more islands in the South Pacific. So then, uh, from we got ready there, and the next jump was uh, to uh, a little island called Pavuvu, and there uh, we had to kind of. It was a island contracted by the Americans. Uh, with the palm olive soap. And they were raising a lot of coconut trees, but it was messy and we had to go in there with bulldozers and stuff and kind of make up our camp. But once we got all, everything ready and the training were ready to invade, well then, uh, we went, we, our first invasion was the island of Pililu. And that was an old island uh, hundreds of years ago. It wasn't even on top of the water, it was all coral. It was just a big old coral reef. And it was loaded with Japanese. And they had been digging tunnels in there for years. In fact, we uh, captured a lot of uh, uh, Japanese, a lot of, uh, no, uh, Filipinos that they had captured and they used them as slaves. But it was hard to take that island because uh, you could shoot bombs and stuff at them. And they were in these caves and you know the rock, you won't go through the rock. So we had a hard time, but we finally got it. We lost a lot of Marines and uh, it was hard. You couldn't dig a foxhole and there was a lot of mosquitoes. We had to have a plane go by at night and spray. If not, they'd eat us up. But, uh, it took us a while but we finally got, got a hold of the island and invaded that. And we were so wore out and so uh, lost a lot of good buddies. And uh, So then we went back to the island of Pavubu and uh, retrain again and uh, rest and get mobilized because our next project was to take over the island of Okinawa. Okinawa is about probably uh, 10-15 miles wide and about uh, 20 miles long something like that and it was also full of Japanese besides there was other islands around the area that uh, had a lot of Japanese soldiers in it too They had taken that whole area so that was going to be quite a job. So then uh, uh, what happened with this, uh, the Uppers military had a pretty smart idea. They uh, acted like we were going to invade the uh, east side of the island. So we started bombing that side of the island, and, and there's a few ships coming in that direction, but the main force came in on the opposite side of the island. So when we went in, we didn't even have to fight. We just walked our way in there. All the Japanese were over on the, on the east side, and we came in on the west side. So we were able to get in there real safe. It wasn't most islands that you have to invade, well it'll take about half of the military to get in there and you get killed or wounded before you even get into the island. But this was nice, it went in there. But the hard part was later that, that the Japanese finally found out and then uh, they knew that they were just shooting at some decoys out there and weren't li- lightly, lively or nothing like that. So they start coming back towards us and they hit us hard, and it took us quite a while to take that island, but uh, we finally did, and then...
1: Uh, Would you say so that it took I, you a week, or... Two oh
0: no, no, it took month. about three months, I think, to take that island, because it was big, and there was Japanese all over the place, and once we had them pushed to the edge where they were going to have to go for a swim or something, well, they come back at us at night, and that was our hard part, you know, we had to keep shooting flares, at night to see if they were coming and sure enough they tried to penetrate our lines and go back into the other part of the island, but then uh, that was a hard fight. That was really, and that, that's where I got wounded. A uh, big explosion went off and I had shrapnel all over my legs and stuff and I couldn't walk. So I was paralyzed for about a couple of weeks, something like that, in one of the tent hospitals that was not too far from, from the front lines. And finally they took all, took all the shrapnel out of my legs, except a few small ones that they came out later. But then I, I start uh, exercising and stuff, <clears throat> got my strength back to my legs. And then I figured, well, boy, they're going to send me to Hawaii somewhere for a rest. But no, they gave my rifle back, my knife, and they said, go back to the front lines. So I had to go back and finish up. So we finally, we finally got, got the island after, a, a, I don't know, uh, I forget just how long it took to get, but it took longer than, than any other island. What Not were
1: the living conditions there in that island?
0: Oh, well... Any,
1: uh,
0: did you guys sleep in tents? Yes, yes, uh, nothing but tents because we were moving. We were moving every two, three days. We had to move either back or forth or whatever, so we had to uh, disassemble all our tents, our mess hall. We carried everything with us, our ammunition. I was a machine gunner in the, and they put me in charge of uh, uh, building a perimeter around the uh, artillery gun. So if the enemy came, well, they wouldn't get to our guns; they get to us first. So that's what we did, and we had to fight them off a lot of times. They were trying to get to our guns so that, you know, they wouldn't be we wouldn't be shooting at them anymore. But that never happened because I was in charge of all of that, and I had a lot of men uh, under me. Uh, I made sergeant by that time and so uh, I had little groups like you had a machine gun with with three with a machine gunner and then three more guys to help in case one got shot while the other took over. And so one time they rushed us and it was so bad that we had uh, air-cooled machine guns and you're only supposed to shoot about maybe not more than 12 bullets at a time and let it rest and then another 10-12 bullets and, and let it rest. But We didn't have time to rest. I mean, we kept shooting, uh, had to keep shooting to keep them from getting to us and uh, the barrels of the machine gun just wore out. They got red hot and then the bullets were coming out sideways instead of straight, but it was helping anyway. So we finally won that battle. So that was, uh, that was really nice. So then once we took the island, uh, we went into a a camp that we built a nice camp and all to to go ahead and get ourselves back together, and then we start uh, building up. We're getting into a lot of supplies, and we're getting better machine guns, like with water-cooled. You could shoot them all day long, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't melt. And then uh, I got uh, also had was given uh, some 50-caliber machine guns, which is uh, big and heavy, but they do a lot of damage. And uh, you have to have about a six-man. Uh, group to handle just one gun because it's so heavy. When you move them, you have to disassemble them, the barrel, the gun, and the tripod. You need three men for that. Then you need about three more men for ammunition, so it makes a bigger crew. But still we could do more damage, so we could start getting ready because we were going to invade Japan. That was our next project, to invade Japan, and we hated that because we knew the Japanese were waiting for it. That was that was a real uh, headquarters of, you know, the, they were gonna defend that with all the people that they had. It was gonna be a bad, bad battle.
1: Do you know what year that was? Uh,
0: that was in 1944, I think, when they signed the peace treaty uh-huh. that same year because we were getting all ready. In fact, they put up a screen and we would watch movies at night, although they were old movies and sometimes we'd watch them two or three times, the same movie, but they wanted to keep us, uh, you know, entertained so then uh, I was at a movie one night and then all of a sudden the loudspeakers came on that the Japanese had surrendered after the atomic bomb. We, we heard about the atomic bomb and all and then right after that, well, uh, the Japanese decided they better surrender. So we were so happy that we didn't have to go to Japan. And so uh, then we went ahead and loaded up everything because we had a storm. Uh, uh, one night we had a storm knocked down all our tents and all, it was a hurricane or, or typhoon or whatever it was in those islands, you know, knocked everything down. So they told us, don't put them back up, roll them up and put them in the trucks. We're going to Japan. And I said, oh, well, at least we're not in war, you know. So, so we did. We went to Japan and landed in Kobe, Japan. And though we, were, we didn't get off the ships, I mean, we got off the ship, but not the equipment, because they said they weren't decided whether we were going to stay or not. Well, we find out later that we weren't going to stay in Japan, there was too many other outfits. Uh, we were the 1st Marine Division and then there's other divisions, another army, and other uh, uh, military that was already in Japan and they needed some help in China. So they uh, designated the 1st Marine Division to go to China and uh, do some duty over there, so we did. We went to China and we unloaded uh, in a little town, um, I forget the name of it, but we had to travel probably about 30 miles to Tinsen, China, and there was a, we were, took over an old, uh, 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 like a fort where the, uh, you know, a long time ago they had these walls built around and the, and the military was in the middle and started protecting from the Indians. Well, I think that they had that built, the French had that built, so we took that over, uh, like an arsenal and stuff. We took that, and so uh, what we did in China was that once the war was over, the Japanese couldn't fight anymore, and they had, there were a lot of Japanese soldiers and families in China, and, uh, and they were taking over the country, and they had their warehouses full of rice, but once the war was over, they couldn't fight, so the Chinese would come over and break into their uh, rice warehouses and steal the rice and beat them up. So it was up to the Marines to go over there and protect them, which was very, very rare because, uh, you know, first we we're fighting them and then we are protecting them. So we were doing, picking up all these Japanese families, put them on ship and send them back to Japan for their own safety. So I did that until I was uh, told that I had put in my time and was ready to come home and I was real glad about that. So after China, well I came back to the United States. And I hadn't uh, finished my high school education yet, I think I was as a sophomore when they were going to draft me and I went ahead and joined the Marine Corps. So I came back and I enrolled back in high school in Lockhart so I could finish, uh, get my uh, diploma. So I did that in in record time because I went to school the regular uh, school season and then uh, also on vacation, you know, when the school was out and went through that I didn't stop. I just kept going until I, I finished my education and, and graduated.
1: The whole year long, huh? Huh? You went the whole year The whole long year, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Until I got my diploma. And then after I got my diploma, well, I figured, well, it's time to go get a job. Because I was living with my mom and dad, and dad said, what are you going to do now? I said, well, I guess I better go find a job. And he came to find a job in Lockhart. There was no good job there, so I came to Austin. And I looked around and I couldn't find a job because all the veterans coming back from the war, after the war, they had gotten the best job. And I couldn't find a job anywhere. So I went back and told Dad, I don't know what I want to do, I can't find a job. He says, why don't you look for a job as an electrician? Because uh, my dad worked for the Coca-Cola company in Lockhart. He says, every time a motor burns up here, I have to take it to Austin and find a, to get it rewound. And boy, they charge a lot of money. So, I went to Austin again to the uh, electric shops and I, f- and I still couldn't find a job. So, then I finally went to the, the biggest rewind shop in Austin, which is Austin Armature Works. And I talked to the Mr. Kramer, he was a big German man, he must have been six foot four or something like that. And he interviewed me and I was kind of dressed up in a suit and all because I, I wanted a, a, to make a good representation. And he says, uh, well, I don't have a job. Do you know how to rewind motors? And I said, no, I don't. And he says, well, I need somebody that knows how to rewind motors. He says, well, well, how am I going to learn if you don't teach me? And that got him. You know. <laughs> and so uh, he says, well, this is a dirty job. He says, I don't think prep boys like you, you know, going to take you. I says, Oh, don't worry about my clothes. I've got my Marine Corps dungarees, and I, I can get to work. And he says, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can use you or not, but would you work for 30 cents an hour? And I said, yes. And I thought he was gonna fall off his chair. <laughs> because again, I got into the GI Bill and the GI was paying me 60 cents an hour to get a job training. And, and he paid me 30, that's pretty good money in those days, 90 cents an hour. And I was living with my mother and father-in-law card, so it was only 30 miles, so. I got into a, a car, a, co-op with uh, uh, three of my friends and I was four, so each one would put their car every, uh, every week, uh, so you put your car for a week and then the other three weeks you'd ride free, you know, and that's the way it worked and it worked okay. Even one day when it snowed, we put chains on the car and we went to work and uh, Mr. Kramer says, man, you're here from Lockhart and these guys that work here and Austin didn't even show up." And so he was surprised about that. Anyway, it was a good job. I really enjoyed it. I learned how to wind motors. And then he went into drilling oil wells and, and we'd go drill oil well just him and me out at Cedar Creek. And uh, he bought a, a drilling rig and we'd go look for oil and we found oil in Crete and we found oil in, in uh, not in Lockhart. Yeah, we found a little bit in Lockhart, but it wasn't much. So then he decided you know, I think there's a lot of oil in Laredo. So we went to Laredo over there for about a month out in the sticks and we never found oil. We had to come back. But anyway, he was able to buy an old, humble oil oil field and uh, he got some partners and then I'm glad he found that because I was tired of drilling wells. It was a lot of hard work. But anyway, uh, I worked up to be a foreman and uh, worked with Mr. Kramer. Of course, he passed away and his son, it was a doctor, he only had one son and his son was a doctor and so uh, it, he didn't know too much about uh, running motors, he knew how to how to take care of people but so uh, I had to run the business for him and uh, uh, teach him about and then he had a son when he graduated from college he came over and so I taught him how to how to do that and then he had another younger son that also when he finished college he came over so we had uh, about four chiefs and uh, more chiefs than Indians working there and I was, already been, I was already 68 years old and I worked for him 45 years and so uh, I figured well it's time to retire. So I retired and opened up my own business uh, just as a consultant and it kept growing and growing and growing and I just, uh, it was just too much for me and I really didn't want to go into a big business hiring people and stuff like that so so I kind of cut down on that business and then my heart started giving out on me and I figure well this is it so I quit that and so um, that's getting close to where I am now uh, besides in in between there you know uh, I forgot to mention that uh, in 1949 I got married with a beautiful girl in, from San Marcos and I'm, we're still married, we've been married 58 years and so uh, We had just been married and we had our first son. Our first son was uh, two months old. And when we got, after we got married and we knew we were gonna have a family, I figured I gotta make a little more money. And so uh, I joined the Marine Corps Reserves in Austin. There was a unit there. And so I'd go to meetings and I'd get my check every month. Everything was working fine until Korea come along. We had to go fight the war in Korea. And I tried to get out of that, but I couldn't. I had already enlisted and so I had to go fight the war in Korea. So I had to leave my wife and my two-month son and I moved uh, to San Marcos, took my wife and my son to her father's in San Marcos to take care of them until I came back, if I came back. So that was a hard war war because uh, it didn't last as long as the Second World War, but still it it was pretty rough. You now on the uh, training and stuff, and I was I had a, a machine gun MOS number, so I knew they were going to make me a machine gunner again. And so uh, when we, when I got to California and we got a little training and we start packing things up to ship to ship out, and so they asked me, "Oh, what did you do in civilian life?" I says, "I'm an electrician." And the lieutenant there said, "Well, can you wind motors generators for the trucks?" I says, "Yes, I can." He says, okay put him in the motor pool. So I was real happy about that and so then I was in the motor pool and we went on to Korea and so uh, once we we had to land in Incheon because uh, they were already fighting the war. (coughs) So the first Marine, in fact I was lucky enough to get in the same outfit I was in the Second World War, the first Marine division and uh, but this time I was in the motor pool. But anyway. uh,
1: What was your rank by now?
0: Oh sergeant. Sergeant. Yeah, I made sergeant after, uh, uh, after the, uh, you know, invasion of Okinawa. So I was a sergeant then, and they put me in a motor pool. But uh, uh, we invaded uh, Korea, went to Incheon. That's about halfway down the peninsula. And we fought our way across, across Korea and cut off all the supply lines to the northern Koreans. And so they had to give up. And then from then on, we started going north and fighting the, fighting the uh, North Koreans to the north. And we got to the 38 parallel and then uh, we had them in a run so bad that we just kept going. And so then we heard that, that uh, General MacArthur was told to hold it because the president, I think it was President Truman said, we're not supposed to go past the 38 parallel and here we were about probably even 10 miles or something across going to North Korea. And they said, no, 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 come back. Come back to the 38. We'll, well, MacArthur was real angry with the president and I heard that the president fired him. So whoever took over said, yeah, let's go back to the 38. So we came back south to the 38 parallel. And so uh, we waited there and uh, of course there was not much going on because uh, North Koreans weren't really trying to uh, because we had them on the run, it took them a while to get their heads together. But anyway, we weren't there too long, probably a week or two, and then they told us to load up, get back on the ships. And we said, well we just have to follow orders, so we got everything back together, and we got on these LSTs that open, uh, the front part of the ship opens up, you know, and you drive right on in. So we loaded everything up in about three of those LSTs, and we didn't know where we were going because they wouldn't tell us much. But anyway, we sailed up around the peninsula of North of Korea and went to North Korea. And we made a landing over there. And I said, boy, this is crazy. But there's nothing you can do. I mean, you've got to follow orders in the Marine Corps. You don't ask why. You, you're told to do something and you better do it or you're in trouble. So anyway, we kept fighting, uh, not fighting, but traveling to North Korea towards the Manchurian border. And then we finally hit some opposition. And the North Koreans had kind of built up a little bit and they were trying to keep us back. But we kept fighting and kept traveling, kept fighting and traveling, going north. And uh, we were real close to the Manchurian border and then it got real cold because you, this is up in a mountain. You've got to climb mountains. You've got to go up and up and up. And then uh, so we had to get supplied, you know, coal coats and boots and stuff and stoves and stuff like that because it gets so cold. And so uh, we kept going and then all of a sudden uh, we didn't go anymore. I said well what's going on? I said well there's about uh, two or three hundred thousand Chinese came at us so and, and then we're surrounded. So they told me huh you were machine gunner weren't you? I said well I was. And he said, Here's a 50 caliber take care of it <laughs> and they only gave me three guys to handle it and that was a lot. But anyway we set up on this mountain and it was snowed, it had snowed and ice and we set up there and we saw these Chinese coming like a bunch of ants so we just kept shooting and shooting them off and then we'd get them with where they, they would pause a little bit, in other words they would scatter and then we didn't see them for a while so we got in our trucks and we start back and one Marine says, hey, are we retreating? And I said, I don't think so. I said, well, the Marines are not supposed to retreat. And he says, well, we're not retreating. We're fighting our way back because they got us surrounded. And we had to get, they had t- three circles. They surround us one circle and we fought our way out of the circle fighting our way back. And then there was another circle and then there was another circle. There was three circles we had to get out of. So anyway, we did what we could, a lot of, A lot of Marines got shot, and a lot of them got frostbite. I got frostbite in my fingers, especially my right finger, because they gave us mittens, and I couldn't get my mitten finger in through the uh, trigger guard, so I cut a hole in it to get my finger out so I could shoot, and it still hurts in the winter, and my feet got frozen, because it was so—it's 40 below zero, so you can imagine how cold that was. But we had to fight our way at night, try and get out at night, and they try to stop us. But then we had our artillery guns and we were shooting point blank one night. We stopped to rest a little bit and here comes, early in the morning, here comes all these Chinese making all kinds of noise and rackets and stuff like a bunch of ants coming at us. So we used our uh, 155 uh, artillery howitzers guns to shoot at them. We had uh, pellets, some of the shells had pellets like It's not a regular bomb, it's just like a shotgun, you know, has pellets, and we used them and we were able to stop them and slow them down a little bit and then here comes the Air Force with their Spitfires and start shooting them and we were just across the railroad tracks from them and they were, the Spitfires made sure that they were shooting on the other side of the railroad tracks, so they kept strafing and strafing and, and then we were able to get in our trucks and get out of there and go a little further anyway to the next circle. And uh, so that, that was Korea. We just kept fighting our way all the way back and probably in about a week. Well, I know we got to the second circle and then it was snowing so bad uh, the airplanes and the helicopters coming for the wounded couldn't get in, they couldn't land. So we had to take care of our wounded until uh, the snow would stop and finally about three or four days of that then the snow stopped. and. Uh, we were able to get our wounded out of there. In fact, I had a buddy of mine that was a truck driver too and uh, he got wounded. One of the grenades that the the Chinese were throwing at us, were they were our own grenades from the Second World War and they put a little string on the end of it and swing it over their head and and throw them at us and they would explode all right when they hit the ground. So my buddy got uh, one of them in his back and so I had him loaded up in my truck and when we got to that second circle, you know, they had tents there for hospitals, and uh, I made sure that he went to one of those tents, but they said, we're gonna park him out here outside right now, because there's no room, but if one of them dies, well, we'll have room for him. Well, I went back hours later, and he was still there, and I said, what's going on? My buddy's still laying out here in the snow, and they said, well, we we need to make room. I said, well, make some room somehow, set up another tent or something. So they did, they took care of the one that was sitting out in the snow. You know. So anyway, the snow stopped, the airplanes start coming in, we start putting all these wounded back back so they could fly them to Japan and the, wherever they needed to go to get cured. And so we start fighting our way back to the third circle and then we start coming down the mountain little by little. And of course they were waiting for us. They were uh, had machine guns set up a- around every curve, but uh, it was so cold and all the Chinese had was whatever they they had on their back and a little bit of rice and I think they had run out of rice but anyway we come up to them and they were aiming the machine gun at us and sitting there but they couldn't move it was just like a a chunk of ice so we just get them and throw them in a truck so so we could turn them into a prison camp but they were they were really stiff and that's really what helped us if there hadn't been for that I think we'd all be shocked because I know we had one tank in front of us and then every once in a while, they'd pick out five or seven Marines to go in front of the tank to make sure there was no holes and nothing. Well, the tank couldn't see, but we had uh, sort of a uh, glare of things in our back. Uh, some of this uh, tape that you can see at night. And that's the only way that the tanks could move at night. And that's when we wanted to move at night so they wouldn't see us and we wouldn't be able to shoot all of us. Anyway, so we did that and uh, So then we finally uh, worked ourselves out of that third ring and then there was uh, another town, I forget the name of it now, where they were waiting for us uh, with big tents and stoves and...
1: Mr. Tamayo, during the uh, Korean War, uh, you stated to me that uh, the actual time you were in about a year, is that correct sir?
0: Yes, that's right. About a year I left in... uh, uh, 1950 and came back in 1951, but uh, so then uh, most of it was uh, front line duty because we kept pushing and pushing. But then uh, once we were able to get out, who the ones of us who got out of the traps that the Chinese had for us in North Korea, and we got aboard ship uh, and it brought us back. South, South Korea, back to Incheon where we had already taken and set up camp there to thaw out and rest and wait for the Chinese to come over to the 38th so we could fight them back because we couldn't fight over the 38th parallel. So we were there and uh, sure enough the Chinese caught up with us. Uh, we had burned a lot of trucks and a lot of equipment and stuff we thought but somehow or other, they got parts of burnt trucks and, and put them together and it would make uh, trucks move. So they had transportation. And so uh, that uh, was completing about uh, probably six or eight months being over there uh, fighting, the first the North Koreans and then the Chinese. And, and so uh, we kept pushing and protecting the 38 parallel and we had to start that fighting all over again. And so then I was, uh, I was notified that uh, my points were up. I had been there enough that I was going to be able to come home. So, and there was another fellow from California that uh, had the same points and he was going to come home in the same time I, I, and so we dug a big hole and we stayed in that hole because we wanted to make sure that a lot of, unlucky Marines you know they uh, think well I'm going home I'm gonna go out and look for souvenirs and they get shot or something so he didn't want to do that so anyway uh, we were still getting bombs there once in a while from the North Chinese at the camp that we were at because we were right at the 38 parallel and if they come any close or anything we'd have to fight them back but anyway the last few days over there well we kind of spent it in the hole we just come out to get something to eat and get back in the hole again and so we survived. You just
1: wanted to make sure you were going to come back yes,
0: home? Yes, I wanted to make sure I was going to come back home because I was missing my wife and my, my son and being home and all of that. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to take any uh, unnecessary chances of any kind. A lot of Marines are real gung-ho and they say, well, I'll do it myself. And next thing you know, they're dead, but uh, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to come home, so it did happen that way. I was able to come home and uh, and start my life again.
1: What what was the mode of transportation in those days? Trains, uh, military uh, aircraft or ships?
0: Yeah, we had ships. In fact, the government hired a lot of private ships like uh, cargo ships and stuff to, to move us around to take us to the islands in the Second World War. And, and then in Korea, we got modernized and we used airplanes, the great big old uh, transport planes. And uh, all we had to do was drive from the 38 parallel to Incheon and then there was a great big transport planes that we got on and they would fly us to Japan. And then from Japan, we'd fly into the United States. But well, some of them with the wounded and the one that needed it. But uh, on us from Japan, we came back on the ship. But it didn't seem to mean like it didn't take as long like it did going over there. But anyway, we landed back in San Diego, California. And then we still couldn't come home because they wanted to check us out. Wanted to make sure we were in good health. Anything wrong with you, well, the Veterans Administration is supposed to take care of it. So we were uh, in California at that Camp Pendleton for maybe uh, uh, three, four weeks or something like that until they, you went through a process. Of being uh, uh, sent home and so uh, they paid us some money and uh, they said you can fly home if you want to but it's gonna cost you so much in fact it took just about all they were paying me and said but the train is a whole lot cheaper so I took a a ticket and train I said when when does this train get to Texas and they said it'll be there tomorrow and I said oh great so I bought a train ticket and got to El Paso But in in that one day, but then from El Paso to Austin, uh, to Lockhart, it took the longest time. You know, Texas is big (laughs) and the train seemed like it stopped in every little town to pick up people. So I was so anxious to get home, but I finally made it and everything was fine. My uh, family was all waiting for me. We had a big get-together one night and uh, I didn't know I had that much family. We covered the whole front yard of the house <laughs> and so then uh, I started living my life again I came back to Mr. Kramer and he says your job is waiting for you and I build a house for you you can live in five acres of land Wow! and I said oh great <laughs> and it was nice and, and so I started my life again uh, of course uh, I don't know what else <laughs> up to now
2: yeah, let me ask you a question the effect of World War II on you and your life, uh, do you feel any of that effect still?
0: I've been trying to fight it. I did it first. I, I feel sorry for my wife because she, she held on to me and all. I was so nervous and I'd get mad. You know, I just couldn't control my temper, things like that. And, uh, but I've been fighting it all these years and I've been asked to interv- be interviewed. And I've turned it down because I don't want to get back to that. But I think I'm old enough now that, that I can talk about it you know it won't bring it back but it was rough. It was really rough. It, it just I was just a different person and I don't know why my wife didn't leave me because uh, she just held on to me and just stayed so I give her credit that she's a strong woman but now I think I've gotten back to normal. As age comes by you get to thinking about these things you know and, and kind of do away with all that you saw and how many of your buddies got killed. In fact there was a fellow from Lockhart and we were just uh, fighting side by side. But he wasn't in my outfit but we were fighting together on the front line. Well he got killed and then when I came back to Lockhart...
2: Do you know the and, name of that
0: person? Uh, Sonny Salji. Salji? His dad worked for, uh, for uh, I think it was a laundry or something in Lockhart and I had to go tell him, you know, that, that I was there when his son got killed. In fact, that same night I was supposed to have been killed myself because they bombarded us, and, but you know we had dug foxholes. Every night we dig foxholes. We get to a place that we're going to spend the night here, you dig your foxhole and get in it. And I got in it and the bomb fell about from here to the door from my foxhole. And I think that's the same night that he got killed, although he was in another outfit further down. We were on the perimeter. And so got up in the morning and oh, that thing. And mother said when I came back that that same night she woke up You know, like something woke her up and she didn't know what it was. You know, and I said, well that was the same night I almost got killed because that bomb fell so close. And I got up in the morning and and my clothes were shreds. I mean, you could just pull them off like that. The concussion, you know, that concussion. And my ears were ringing, ringing for a long time. But anyway, I was lucky enough to survive through that.
2: Do you have any... uh grandkids that are
0: fighting the war in Iraq or Afghanistan? No, I haven't been lucky enough to have grandkids. I've got two sons. One lives in New York and he decided not to get married. And my other son lives across the street here, George Tamayo. He works for the state. And this is, good this morning. is, this is,
1: morning. is my wife. Good, <laughs> good morning, Hi. are you, sir? Hi?
0: So, I, I wish I had grandkids, but I don't. But, uh, Anyway.
2: How do you feel, as a veteran of World War II, with what you hear about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan nowadays?
0: Uh, as to what they say, or, or yeah. what the difference is, or... Yeah, well, well, all I can say is I'm glad I'm not fighting this war. Because in the Second World War, in Korea, you know where the enemy was. It's right in front of you. you know? And now you don't know where the enemy is. Poor guys, they're out there and uh, they don't know where they enemy he could be walking right next to him. And it's a bad war. It's really a bad war. We should have never got into it. But uh, that's the way it happens. I mean, you have a leader that uh, thinks about something else, I guess.
1: <laughs> but, when you were uh, fighting over there, were you able to communicate with your wife uh, through mail or anything? Yes.
0: Yes. Uh, when I was in California, I called in and talked to them. But once I left California, I couldn't. There was no like now you have the, your different communications and stuff, but I did write letters. <laughs> I wrote letters, and, and uh, in the Second World War, you weren't allowed cameras. And in fact, I'd write home, and they had a, an officer that was always reading the mail. And it says, my name was Tamayo. They uh, thought I was Japanese. So they were always calling me to the office, and they'd look at me, and they says, you're not Japanese. I says, no, I'm not. Well, Tamayo? I said, well, maybe it's a Japanese name, but I'm not, I'm Mexican. And so they would read my letters and they would cancel some of them. I would tell mother and my sisters and my dad, you know, what's going on? And they'd cancel all of that. But in Korea, we could do that. In fact, Korea had a camera. And I would send the roll back, and then they would send me another roll. And when they sent me a roll, I'd get the full roll, put it in there, and mail it back. So we were able to communicate. And she would send me pictures of it of George and how long have you been married to uh, your wife 58 years 58 years in June this year and so thanks to her um, I'm still here (laughs) because uh, she took a lot from me really
2: uh Gabe I want to thank you for letting us do this interview with you Uh, if there's anything else that you'd like to include
0: be glad to well, talk. I just thank the Lord that I'm still alive and I'm still kicking, and uh thanks to the doctors and the medicines and the pills that we take every day.
2: Can I, just one last question. What motivated you to, to to join a veterans organization like the Captain's War Veterans and uh, get involved with that?
0: Okay. Uh, after we were uh, living here in Austin and uh, when was it? uh when did we start, in 19 what?
2: 57.
0: 57. Okay, uh, we joined the uh, uh, San Jose Parish. We were to San Jose they went to church there and all. And uh, so there was all these veterans, but then uh, there was a the Catholic War Veteran post in Guadalupe, in East Austin. And they were strong, you know, and then they got to thinking, well, uh, we were getting strong ourselves. a lot of veterans in San Jose Parish. And so uh, what was it, Pete Cáceres, uh, Felipe Acosta, uh, Manuel Castillo, uh, Jean Cáceres, too, I think, uh, they, they belong to San Jose Parish. So instead of them going all the way to Guadalupe, they said, maybe we can start one here in Austin. So they start talking to veterans and Raul Reyna came over and talked to me that we are going to start a Catholic War Veteran post, would you like to join? I said, well, yeah, you know, that'd be good. So we got enough guys together to start a post in San Jose Parish, and so we had elections, and they elected me, the first commander, which I didn't know nothing about, nothing but I got all this paperwork from the state that I could read and hold a meeting and do this and do that, and what we were for you know and ever since then we got we got active and we got doing things, you know, giving helping people and having Christmas parties and stuff and Helping the poor and all of that. And so re- was your
2: concentration in helping other veterans
0: yes. transition? Yes, yes we did. We had some veterans that had problems and we would help them all we could with that. And then probably ended up, they ended up with the Veterans Administration to have, because programs came up, you know, like the school program. The veterans, a lot of them didn't know. would well, you join this uh, school program, go to school, go to college, go to whatever, trade school. I went to. I went to trade school to learn how to weld mechanics and, and electricity, you know, things like that. that. helped me a whole lot. You know, So uh, you know, Father Hauser is the one that really helped us too because he was the parishioner there at San Jose and, and he, he came in with us and, and he let us use the hall. And he, but we would help the church too when we built that, uh, not the new church now, the old church that San Jose, well we helped build that. We'd go there every day and dig ditches or whatever we needed, but that was really the hall, that wasn't the church. He said we're gonna build the hall first, and then, and then we'll build the church. You know, so we helped. The, the veterans helped us. San them post a whole lot. But then we saw that a lot of people didn't, were always criticizing us, that we were just making money off of them, this and that. So we decided we better find us our own place. So what happened on these five acres that Mr. Kramer owned, that he built a house for me and my wife there. there was, we built a warehouse for the electric motors that we were using for business. And then he bought another piece of land on South Congress and we built a shop and a warehouse. So we took all these motors, we had our own warehouse now and that was empty. So I told the veterans, listen, uh, I'll talk to Mr. Kramer and see if he let us use that for a clubhouse. So I did. He said, yeah, go ahead. We, I'm not using it. So that's the one we have now. <laughs> so I lived right there. So I got so active that they they called me for everything. You rent a hall, okay take care of the hall, somebody's coming So I stayed pretty busy all these years you know and then finally well uh, we had to find a place of our own because that wasn't our own even though uh, Mr. Kramer wouldn't charge me rent for living there and didn't charge the veterans rent for using the hall until his son you know came over. And uh, his son says, "I'm paying a lot of taxes there. Maybe you'll give me some rent to pay my taxes." So I think that's the way it is now. But anyway, that's what got me to active, and, and we really won a lot of awards. We went to a lot of places, we met a lot of people, and really And this has really helped me to get away from the war, from what I saw, from what I was in. You know, it moved me over here where I got away from all of that. That helped a whole lot.
2: Any questions? I, I don't have any questions. Thank okay. you very much, Mr. Tamayo. Thank you very much. We yeah. really appreciate
0: it. You're welcome.
2: And uh, we'll submit this to the public library, like I said earlier. It will go into the congressional uh, archives. Good. Okay.
0: okay. What's the address uh, there, and uh, where it's we'll, at? We'll, we'll give you
2: uh, a copy of that right there. Uh huh. Okay. Is that, the only, is that the only
0: release form you have to
2: sign? Oh.